Welcome back to In the Labyrinth of Death. My name is Finn. And I'm Marina. Today, we're talking about structure fires. So when we say structure fires, we're talking houses, businesses, apartments, can even be a barn, literally anything that's a man-made structure. I've always been fascinated by kind of the logistics and speed that you need to get out of a fire because it's not just me and it's not just Finn. We've also got a toddler. We've got two dogs. So you don't have a lot of time when a house is on fire, especially if you're in like a second story or an apartment building that might be multiple stories up. How do you get everyone out in time before it's like engulfed in flames or the smoke is too dark to see or before you start dying of carbon monoxide? So you just don't have a lot of time to fuck up and like not get your dogs in time or not get to your kid in time. So I don't know. I've just always been interested in the subject. I remember when I was in high school, I was super excited because I got a chance to actually talk to a fire marshal about evacuation procedures and like what I should do because I was volunteering somewhere and like, what do I do if someone's in a wheelchair and they can't take the stairs? So I think it's a fascinating subject, not just because it's terrifying, but also because you have to enact logistical plans very, very quickly, if that makes any sense. For me, the fascination lies in the scale of a structural fire because you're not limited to just having one building or one house be on fire. It can spread horizontally really quickly. You can think of like the Great Chicago Fire, but even going way further back in time than that to like ancient Roman fires, the famous one being Nero, for example, huge neighborhoods made of wood and clay and stone just burning down. And that technically qualifies for what we're considering as a structure fire that's just a multi-structural fire. The speed at which, too, I think is really relevant to talk about. We're going to go into that in detail later, but things can be okay and very, very suddenly in the span of like a minute be not okay in the worst way possible. We've got one small tidbit before we start. We've got stickers. We're literally giving away stickers for free while supplies last. You can check them out and request one on our website at inthelabyrinthofdeath.com slash stickers. You can also find more fun stuff on our website, like a link to a bunch of disaster and true crime books on bookshop.org. So check it out. It's pretty cool. inthelabyrinthofdeath.com. As always, remember, we're not experts at all of any kind. We just really don't want to die, and we like researching and talking about it. So please listen to our full disclaimer at the end of the episode, and don't sue us. We're just two regular people. The story we're going to open with today is the story of the Childers Palace Backpackers Hostel Fire. But first, let's set the scene a little bit. So the Old Palace Hotel is a historical building in an area of Queensland called Childers, which is about 130 miles north of Brisbane. The Palace Hotel was an old building. It's kind of like a white two-story building, and honestly, it looks like something out of like New Orleans because it's kind of got this like ornate double-deckered porch going on. Now, the town of Childers is small. Even today, there's only about 1,500 people living there. But it's an official historical town in Australia, and it's registered with the National Trust. So the area that would become the town of Childers was originally populated by the Dundaburra group of the Kabi-Kabi nations, and there are actually still some of their descendants living in the area. Europeans arrived in Childers later in the 1850s, and the town was officially formed in 1885. So picture a small town, lots of old historic buildings, even though a lot of the buildings are actually version two of themselves because a lot of the town burned down in 1902. The Palace Hotel was actually built in the aftermath of that 1902 fire, but we're actually talking about a different fire in Childers history today. The Palace Hotel in Childers was converted from a hotel to a hostel in the 1980s and actually became super popular. It was a thing where people would backpack like around Australia picking fruit for money. So this little town welcomed the backpackers who would earn their money harvesting fruit from the local farms. And I read that like in a given like week or month or something, they would get 500 people coming to do this every month in this little tiny town. So it was a lot of people. All right, so we're going to fast forward from the 1980s to the year 2000. A man named Robert Long had been staying in room 12 of the hostel since March 2000, and everyone thought there was just something off and weird about him. He was super grumpy, he was offended easily, and he just wouldn't let go of these like little, small, perceived slights against him. To wake people up, people who were staying there at the time said he would sometimes roll up paper, light it on fire, and then hold it next to the smoke alarm to set the alarm off to wake everybody up in the building. And he became increasingly vocal about other fire-related things, particularly about the lack of fire safety in the hostel itself. One day, he even warned people that, quote, there is a fire bug getting around town, so look out for them. And he also frequently talked about needing respect and about getting back at all those people who offended him, saying, quote, something could happen. So this guy, his name is Robert Long, is basically a million red flags for, like, being a psychopath. 
Robert Long was evicted and forced to move out of the hostel on June 14, 2000, and so he moved into the Federal Hotel, which is like literally just down the road. After that point, after June 14th, he left at least two suicide notes around town, but obviously didn't actually kill himself. He also told an English couple that he was going to burn down the palace hostel and instructed that couple to leave their door and windows open. And I personally feel like threatening arson like that should be enough of a reason to arrest somebody, but I guess it was a small town. It was the year 2000, so who knows? On June 22nd, Robert Long was chatting with two people outside of the palace hostel, telling them that he had terminal cancer and only two months to live. He also told them that when he'd been forced to move out of the hostel six days earlier, he'd actually made a copy of the keys before he turned them into the innkeeper. So this brings us to the day of the fire, June 23rd, 2000. That day, there were 88 people staying at the hostel out of a total capacity of 101. So Robert Long was inside the rec room before midnight with a bunch of other people in there when somehow a plastic bin full of paper towels and topped with like a sofa cushion mysteriously caught on fire. So another guest in the room asked Robert to help him take it out of the building. Everyone assumed it was some weird freak accident. And they all went upstairs to go to sleep after that, leaving Robert Long to sleep on the couch in the rec room basically by himself. And then a little before 12.30 a.m., another fire was started in the same rec room. So it burned super quickly. It went straight up the walls and went into the stairwell. And as the fire quickly spread, the hostel lost power and smoke filled the rooms of the sleeping guests, like all of the rooms. And unfortunately, there were no emergency lights and no fire alarms went off at all. It was fortunate that some folks were awake and they managed to wake some of the other people in the hostel. And at 12.31, which is only a few minutes after the fire started, Someone had called emergency services for help at the payphone across the street. The guests helped each other find their way out of the smoke and flames, and it would end up taking emergency services four hours to put the fire out. Now, like I said earlier, the hostel had two floors, a ground floor and the first floor, which we would call the second floor here in the U.S. Most people who died were on that upper floor. In one room alone, 10 people died because one, the window was barred, and two, the secondary exit door was blocked by a bunk bed that they couldn't move, and like all the smoke and confusion. In total, 60 people escaped the hostel totally unscathed. 10 people suffered minor burns, and 15 people were killed. Seven of them were British, three were Australians, including a pair of twin sisters. Three people from the Netherlands were killed, one person from South Korea, and one person from Japan were also killed. The mayor at the time, Bill Trevor, said, quote, there weren't many injuries. It seems you either got out alive or you didn't get out at all. Now, back to Robert Long. It would be days before they caught him because he was on the run in the area with his backpack. He was lurking in the sugar fields and stealing food from other harvesters at lunch. He would literally go and like steal people's sandwiches. He was finally spotted by a couple who saw him hiding behind a literal tree. So they called the cops and they showed up really quickly. Robert Long ran again. This time, though, he had a knife, so he was cornered by two police officers and their police dog, and he's brandishing the knife at them. They tell him to drop the knife or they're going to release the dog. He doesn't drop the knife. They release the dog. He ends up stabbing the poor dog. They recall the dog. The dog goes after him again, and he ends up, I think, stabbing the dog again, and they end up shooting him at this point. So he claims that he's dying because he's been shot, but he didn't die. Instead, he got life in prison which apparently doesn't actually mean life because he was first eligible for parole in June 2020 and it was denied, but he's apparently eligible for parole again, either now or in a few weeks from what I can tell. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see what happens with him. I just want to say I love how scumbags like this guy who kill multiple people and stab a dog more than once are eligible for parole when people who do drastically lesser crimes are stuck for 30 to 50 years in jail. It is absolutely insane to me. So anyways, this guy was known to have been a scumbag for a long time. At least months. Yeah, he'd been around the area for like three or four months, I think. Yeah, and it's one of those unfortunate cases where you can't really arrest him until he's done something, but at the same time, you know he's going to do something. It's as close to minority report as you can get because this guy was bound to do something at some point. I feel like you can arrest somebody if they're threatening arson. That yeah. feels like a real thing, but I don't know. If there's any police officers listening, let us know. But I feel like that should be a thing you could hopefully arrest somebody for. If I were a law enforcement officer, I would say, on the record, this guy has clearly threatened to multiple people that he's going to commit a serious deadly crime, a violent crime. There is very little reason to not arrest this person 
because there's clearly going to be the intent to commit that crime sooner or later. I mean, it is a small town. Who knows? Maybe the people didn't even tell the police that he was doing this. Because remember, they were from out of town, too. The couple he told he was going to burn it down, they were English. They may not have known the police there, so who knows? Dude, if I'm a tourist over in, like, Singapore, I would tell law enforcement that there's some fucking weirdo telling people that he's going to burn the school down or something. I mean, yeah, I would, too. I, I call the police over everything as a lesson. If someone's being a fucking psycho, you should probably tell someone they're being a psycho. Now, also, I did want to say, because I was a little bit confused at first, how he was able to light the papers on fire and then set off the smoke alarms if then a few months later there were no longer functioning smoke alarms. Mm -hmm. And apparently there were smoke alarms. By some accounts, they had been disabled two weeks before the big fire happened in June. So they were working, but they were working sporadically even before that because sometimes people would take out the batteries to put in their cameras which is pretty awful. So Mm -hmm. people would do that. And sometimes there would be like false alarms and stuff. And so they would disconnect them because we used to have smoke alarms go off in our apartment all the time. So apparently that's why those things, they were not functioning then, but they did physically have them. They just weren't operational. We're going to get into some of the background and stats about structure fires. So something I wanted to open with, which is kind of just like a separate thing, was Going into what it means when you have like a four alarm fire or a six alarm fire, I just saw that term a lot in my research and I didn't know what that meant. Basically, it's the number of firefighters that are called to help handle the fire. And what exactly it means depends on the area, but I found an article about the Louisville Fire Department that broke it down like one alarm fire is 20 firefighters and two commanders. A two alarm fire is 40 firefighters and four commanders all the way up to a six alarm fire, which is 120 firefighters and 12 commanders. And there's like a whole, at least in that that department that I looked at, there's a whole different set of like trucks that will go out at each of those alarms. But in terms of just visualizing the number of people that are there, that's kind of how it breaks down. So when they talk about having like a big six fire alarm, that's 120 firefighters being managed by 12 commanders. So that's like a whole ton of people. So like Finn was saying earlier, there's a lot of ways to die in a fire. The majority of the deaths are going to be due to toxic fumes. Only 30% of the deaths are actually related to actual burns from the fire itself. And interestingly, you can also be killed by just burning the inside of your lungs like the actual tissue just by breathing when the air gets hot enough. You don't even have to be in the room where the fire is because the air can really get heated up really fast. Basically, the fire is going to burn through all of the shit in the building, including all the plastics and all the other man-made materials. And that's going to create some really gnarly gases. Yes, these gases are an even bigger problem than you think because once the fire has burned through most of the available oxygen, it sucks because not only is there not enough oxygen, but now the air has been replaced with toxic fumes in its place. The gases can either be vapors, so think like water vapor that can literally poison you if it gets absorbed through your skin or inhaled, or they can be literal toxic gases. These gases include carbon monoxide, which per the CDC causes, quote, headaches, dizziness, weakness, upset stomach, vomiting, chest pain, and confusion, end quote. As the oxygen levels drop around you, you're going to become progressively more confused, nauseated, headachy, and uncoordinated. Ultimately, you'll lose consciousness and die from cardiac arrest, which again will hit you probably before you can even have a chance of burning to death. You can also get exposed to some really bad shit like phosphine gas. If you've ever seen Breaking Bad, that's what kills the two bad guys at the beginning, like the very first episode. When the wrong shit burns, it can produce things like phosphine gas or even worse. So per the CDC, phosphine gas specifically when inhaled, quote, causes respiratory irritation, can compromise heart or cardiac circulatory functions, depresses the central nervous system, and can also produce severe gastrointestinal pain. So like I said, when the wrong shit burns and you breathe it in, it is arguably even worse than having the chance of being burned to death. So I'm going to roll through some stats about house fires in particular, just because they're super fascinating. And it turns out if you're going to die in a fire as a civilian, meaning someone who's not a firefighter, chances are you're going to die in either your house or somebody else's house. Over 2,000 people die every single year in house fires. 
And the other crazy number is over 40,000 pets are killed every year in house fires. I'll talk a little bit more later on about how to protect both your family and your pets in house fires. But just remember, literally thousands of people and thousands of pets die every year. So you have to really take this seriously. So I'm going to get now into some of the leading causes of house fires. By far, the leading cause of house fires are cooking. Cooking incidents, things go wrong, someone catches fire on the stove or something in the oven. And these are actually super deadly in a few rare cases where there's like an adult who's less mobile and their jacket or maybe their sleeve, something loose catches on fire. They are significantly more likely to die if their clothing catches on fire first, as opposed to like just having like an oil fire on the stove. The next leading cause of house fires is heating. And I think when they say heating, they mean stuff like space heaters would be my guess. Next is like lighting equipment, then intentional fire setting is the next one down. I'm guessing that means stuff like arson or maybe kids playing with matches. And the last leading cause is smoking materials. And so a fire started by smoking materials, meaning like you're smoking and you fell asleep, is actually the most likely to kill you. So you're most likely to be injured in a cooking fire, but most likely to be killed because of a smoking incident. So I'm curious as to what you mean by smoking material. Are you talking about like tobacco or other things that you burn like recreationally? What do you mean by that? Yeah, so I I don't have a breakdown of what the materials are specifically that this study was talking about, but I imagine basically anything that can be smoked, if you fall asleep in bed or on a couch or an armchair and it's still lit, then you're on that upholstery and that's going to ignite really fucking fast. And that actually ties really well into this next thing, which is you're most likely to die in the bedroom or in the living room as opposed to the kitchen and the materials that are most likely to kill you in terms of like where the fire started are again it's going to be the upholstery it's going to be a mattress it's going to be something like that where you might be unconscious you're smoking the cigarette drops onto the couch next to you it ignites and then you're right there where the fire starts and you're asleep when it happens and so you're disoriented you're not really with it and that's where it can become deadly really fucking fast So I found it fascinating how each of these rooms has their own like death statistics, but with the kitchen, even though the incidence of fires is the highest, which is almost 50%, you have the lowest chance of dying as compared to the living room or the bedroom. And it makes sense because you're most likely awake or not like groggy if you're cooking, whereas you might be more relaxed or asleep in the bedroom or the living room. So if there is a fire, remember what we mentioned earlier, it's not the heat or the burning that's going to kill you. It's going to be the fumes, the toxic gases, whatever you breathe in. So if you're already tired or asleep, you're going to be killed by that alone. And it's not going to happen in the kitchen because you're not sleeping in the kitchen. Yeah, exactly. So That's one of the reasons why it's so fucking important to have a smoke alarm, because if you're in your kitchen and there's an oil fire and you're awake, obviously you will see it if you're actively cooking. But if you are, if you're distracted and you left something on the stove or you fell asleep on the couch, that smoke alarm is going to realize that before you do when you're fucking asleep and it's going to wake you up with the alarm. So that's a huge fucking deal. And it's not just the fact that it'll wake you up. It'll wake you up at a point where you can actually be woken up. Yes. Because if you somehow have like a sixth sense where you did fall asleep when quote unquote smoking material or something is burning in your house, it may be too late because you're already cognitively impaired. Whereas the smallest amount of like carbon monoxide or something that is like that, that is a result of a fire that can be picked up by your fire detector or smoke detector and wake you up before it's even a problem for you. Yeah, exactly. Now you're talking about carbon monoxide are we have combo smoke and carbon monoxide detectors so mm-hmm. if you have just a smoke detector remember you need to either get a separate carbon monoxide detector or make sure you have a combo smoke and carbon monoxide detector together yes yeah don't assume that they are both functioning in the same unit because a lot of the older ones i think don't have that it's only just smoke or the other one yeah and you can also if you're really into detectors you can also get an explosive gas detector specifically so if you're doing like propane and stuff like that Stuff like that you should be able to smell, but regardless, you can get all kinds of different detectors. And remember, you don't have a lot of time to get out of a burning house. According to ready.gov, you've got about two minutes before a house fire becomes life-threatening. In three and a half minutes, a house fire can reach as high as 1100 degrees Fahrenheit, which is like basically incomprehensible. It's like double a pizza oven. And even if you're not in a room that's currently burning, like you're in an adjacent room, it can still be as hot as 300 degrees Fahrenheit in the room next to the room that's on fire. 
So you need to get out really fucking fast. Now, in four minutes, your house is going to be so filled with smoke that it's going to be completely dark. Like, even if you have on every single light in your house, it's going to be basically like pitch black, like you're in the middle of like a subterranean cave. You will not be able to see. And by five minutes, it's likely your whole house is going to be engulfed in flames, especially newer construction. It's going to go up really fucking fast. So I'm curious about that. Is there a reason why new constructions in particular are more susceptible to becoming a blazing inferno that quickly? Yeah, I think it's a trade-off between like, so you think about older buildings, right? Where it's like, oh, it's built with like actual brick and stone like that. And that shit doesn't burn very easily, right? It's going to take a long time to go through it. Houses that are built now, even though they're built with a lot of wood, are flame retardant. So it's less likely to catch on fire in the first place. But if it does, it's going to burn. So what if you're not in a house and you're in a different kind of building, like maybe somewhere out in public? You have to remember a few things. Crowd crushes are possible during a fire kind of situation because everyone's panicking. And if everyone looks to the same exit and runs to the same exit, people can become crushed and wedged in there and actually asphyxiate to death. So one big example is the Brooklyn Theater fire in 1876, in which 278 people died. And many of the people who died were trapped and crushed in exits specifically. Something similar was the Iroquois Theater fire in 1903 that was even worse. And in that fire, 602 people were killed most of them asphyxiating when they got crushed at the exits trying to flee. So remember, it's not just something that happens in like the 1800s and early 1900s. It can still happen now. We had a whole episode about crowd crushes, so go out and check out episode eight if you haven't listened to it yet. In general, though, when you're somewhere out in public, be aware of all the exits that you could use. If everyone's going to try to cram through one, if you see another exit that's safe that you can get to, take the other exit. Don't get crushed to death with everybody else. So like we said in the very beginning, structure fires encompass not just house fires, but other buildings as well, public buildings. So you might have learned in school where if there's like a tornado, an earthquake, or a fire that you go slow and steady, single file through line, it is not what's going to happen in real life. So people are going to trample each other. They're going to cram, create those crowd crushes like you mentioned. So I think one key thing to keep in mind as you go through these buildings with a newfound sense of you know, self-preservation, try to figure out not just where the quote-unquote main exit is, but also tertiary, secondary exits that maybe are further away to get to, maybe more inconvenient to get to, but might have less foot traffic that'll prevent you from exiting safely. Yeah. And I I just want to add one thing in there real quick, talking about people trampling and, and, you know, like quote-unquote trampling, but getting crowd crushed and stuff like that. So It is true that in these kinds of like screaming fire in a theater, whether there's a real fire or not, people panic. But in some weird situations, people don't panic. Like when people were evacuating the building during 9-11 and the Twin Towers, they weren't like stampeding down the stairs. They were like people like going slowly and helping each other. And I, I don't know what the differentiator is between those two situations. So the other big chunk of being in a structure that's not a house is elevators and stairs. So whatever you do, don't take the elevator. And there's a couple of reasons for that. One is if the building loses electricity, the elevator itself could get shorted out, which would trap you inside. And worst case scenario is you're trapped inside, maybe between two floors. And the elevator shaft itself is basically going to become a huge chimney for the smoke because it's going to get super hard to breathe really fast. Now, what happens if you're trapped in an elevator already when the fire starts? Whatever you do, don't try to pry the doors open. Instead, just press that emergency button that all elevators have and wait to be saved by the firefighters. And one interesting thing I found about elevators and fires is that elevators are going to go straight into fire mode if a fire is detected. So basically, all of the elevators are going to go straight to the ground floor and then the doors are going to open up. And they're just going to sit there on the ground floor with the doors open until the firefighters get there. And then the firefighters have a special like skeleton key that they use to start operating the elevator again. And they might use that elevator to help evacuate people quickly. So don't get on the elevator unless you've been told by a firefighter specifically. So there's some things you can do to prevent fires, particularly in your house. Obviously, if you're out in a building somewhere, you probably don't have any power over preventing fires there. But in your own home, you do have some power. So... What you can do, most importantly, is making sure that you have a functioning smoke alarm. Over half the people who are killed in fires are either in homes where there was no smoke alarm or there was a smoke alarm that wasn't working. And you're going to need to have that smoke alarm on every level of your house as well as in each bedroom. And something else that 
it came out since we've been adults is I think the idea that you can have these hardwired smoke alarms. So basically if one goes off like downstairs in the basement, then they all go off and including the one that's like in your bedroom when you're asleep. So you'll hear something going off anywhere from inside of your house. So if you can, and it's probably going to be required by code, make sure you have a hardwired smoke alarm system. Now, a lot of smoke alarms now, also, if you get the smart ones, can be connected by Wi-Fi to each other. So you can do that too, either one. Just make sure that they're connected with each other and that you're meeting code wherever you live. If you happen to have a home security system, there might be an option to connect your smoke alarm through that as well. So in the event that it's triggered, then the security company can actually send a signal out to emergency services or firefighters to come your way without you having to manually call them yourself. And a big benefit to that is if you're not home, then the emergency services are going to be called so your pets aren't going to burn to death, which is a huge, huge fear of mine. And we actually kind of tested this out inadvertently when we were making a pizza a few months ago and we burnt it in the oven and the smoke alarms went off and the dogs were freaking out. And we got like a call from the emergency services people. And if we hadn't been there to answer it, then they probably would have actually sent a fire truck out. And almost as important as having a functioning smoke alarm is having a working sprinkler system. Having both of those systems together working in tandem makes it incredibly unlikely that you're going to die in a fire. Let's say for the sake of hypotheticals that there's a thousand homes that have fires in situations where those homes all have smoke alarms and sprinkler systems, then only one person would die in those thousand fires. Now, compared to the same thousand fires in which those houses only have one smoke alarm and no sprinklers, then eight people would die, which is literally eight times more. So you really, really want to have both sprinklers and a smoke alarm to prevent anything that could happen in those fires. I've looked into getting sprinklers installed in our home. So we live in like a regular single family home. But unless you're building new construction, it's basically prohibitively expensive to kind of retrofit it into your house. I looked at it, it was going to be like an insane amount of money. It was going to be like $30,000 or $50,000 or something crazy to retrofit a sprinkler system into our house. So if you're building a new house, you can kind of factor it in at that point when you don't have walls up and stuff and it's a lot cheaper. And if you happen to live in Maryland, D.C. or California in new construction, you're actually in luck because your home is required to be built with sprinklers. The rest of us who don't live in those places are just kind of out of luck unless you want to shell out like that insane amount of money. So if you're in an apartment building, you probably have sprinklers. So you're a lot safer in that situation. We actually used to live in an apartment and they did make me feel safer. The fact that we had the sprinklers, but I feel like the pipes burst all the time in the apartment with the sprinkler system. We walked out one time and the fire alarm was going off because it goes off whenever the sprinkler system gets depressurized. And there was like a torrential downpour of water on our floor. It was crazy. So just remember, no matter what, it's better to have some water damage than it is to be burned alive. In the case where you're living either in a house that doesn't have a sprinkler system because it's old or it's prohibitively expensive to install, which it is, then try your best to have a fire extinguisher on every floor of your house and in an easily accessible area. So maybe in places that are high foot traffic and more publicly accessible spaces as opposed to like closets or bedrooms so that people are familiar with them, where they're placed, and also how to get to them quickly. For example, one open area that'd be great for a fire extinguisher could be in the kitchen or maybe uh, right outside of the staircase, the entryway through staircase. So if you've got something like a linen closet, um, try to have something in there that's easily accessible and not tucked behind something. I have a couple points about fire extinguishers. One is, I know the advice is to have one on every level and then also have one in the kitchen, obviously, but I also have read that you should not waste time trying to put out a fire if you could get out safely. So if you're in the kitchen, use the fire extinguisher and then the fire starts spreading, don't like stay there and try to fight the fire. You should just get out while it's still safe to do. Likewise, if you're woken up in the middle of the night in your bedroom by a fire, chances are it's already spread too far by that point for a fire extinguisher to do anything. So don't waste time trying to put it out if you could just leave the house and get to safety and then let the professionals handle it. But I think there is a valid counterpoint there where if it's something that is obviously within your control, like if there's some kind of, I don't know, a little fire in like a wastebasket or in like your sink or something, then 
clearly there's something that you can do to put it out, at least yeah. put effort into it and not just leave the house because it almost falls into a realm of what do you call it? A judgment call. So if it looks like it's uncontrollable or or has a potential to become uncontrollable, then sure leave. But don't just say, Oh, there's a match that's on clearly yes, that's going to, you know of, what I'm saying? Of there, course, there's yeah. thresholds. And I don't think those thresholds are defined really anywhere, which is the problem. I think if it begins to spread, then that's when that's when I would call it and say, fuck it, I'm out, we're leaving. Well, even then, it's like, what do you mean by spread? Like, if it's spreading throughout an entire room, maybe. But if it's spreading within the span of, like, a countertop, like, there's still some validity in trying to put that out. Sure. It does go fast, though. Yeah, of course. But if you have an accessible fire extinguisher, I don't know. I think it would behoove you to try to do something. It, it depends. It depends on your temperament as a person. It depends on the likelihood that, that more shit's going to get caught on fire. So, like I said, it seems like a judgment call in the absence of any other officially given guidance. Yeah, and there's also other things you can get, like a fire blanket to like throw on top of a fire and stuff like that. My other point I wanted to bring up about fire extinguishers was there's a bunch of different kinds, which I didn't really understand before. So, if you're putting like a fire extinguisher in the kitchen, you want to make sure that that particular fire extinguisher is rated for grease and electrical fires. There's a whole bunch of other kinds that may not be able to put out a kitchen fire. So just read the labels and make sure you're getting the right kind. So there's other things that you can buy in terms of fire preparedness. And one are these ladders that they actually hook over windowsills. And they're all compacted. They're like maybe like six inches tall when they're like not folded out. And basically, you know how like you have a slinky and you put it on the edge of a stair and it kind of like unfolds itself and goes down. This is the same kind of thing where you hook it over the edge of your windowsill and you just kind of tilt it over, and then this whole ladder basically falls down the side of a building. So if you're in an apartment building or your bedrooms are on the second floor, then this is something that you can use where if you don't feel comfortable jumping out of that window, or you might have a small child, that they could just open up the window, push the ladder down, and then get out safely that way. There's also something that they make. They're like these fire bags, basically. So they're rated up to like 35 or 50 pounds or something, where basically if you have like a baby or like a dog or something that you can actually put them inside of these like zipper bags and then you can lower them down and they're like fire safe and they're breathable and they're usually bright colors so that if firefighters come and you are like still trapped inside of the building, they'll be able to see them and save them. So we have those because our daughter was too small to be able to climb down one of the ladders by herself and we have dogs. So we have a couple of those kind of like fire bags you can use to lower a small creature down to the ground from an upper level. I also keep dog harnesses like in our bedroom on the back of the door. And that's for two reasons. One, in case of emergency, so that I don't have to go downstairs to get harnesses for them. So I can just, you know, harness them. And then if there's a fire or a tornado or whatever, then I could have them with me and not have to look for them. But you can also use that to lower your dogs down. And given that we're only on the second story here, I would, in the event of like a really bad fire, probably just throw them out the window because it's better to break a leg than it is to die. Another thing that you can do to reduce your chance of dying in a structural fire is to reduce the amount of clutter that's in your house. So in addition to reducing the risk of having spiders and other kind of vermin roam around in your living room, (laughs) you will drastically, and studies support this, you'll drastically reduce your risk of dying just because there's less shit that can burn. There's less shit that will transfer fires and flames and embers to the next thing. And it'll be easier to get out, right? Yeah, you're not going to trip over and fumble over trying to get to the door because you stepped on a fucking Lego or something. And if you have kids, a really important thing to do is make sure they're sleeping in actual proper pajamas because those are either going to be like flame retardant, like our daughter sleeps in nightgowns, so those are flame retardant, or they're going to be tighter and that's going to reduce like excess fabric that could catch on fire when they're asleep. And remember, in kids under five, more than half of the deaths from fire happen at night. So if you're putting them in like actual proper pajamas, you're giving them a fighting chance versus them just like igniting when they're asleep. Lightning round. The next couple points that we're going to talk about are relatively common sense, but we're saying them just for posterity. So in order to prevent actual fires within your home, for example, in the kitchen, if there's a fire, smother it with some kind of lid or thing that can surround the fire completely and close the oven if there's something on fire inside. Try to keep your kitchen as clean as possible since years of grease buildup and things that can be like grimy could ignite and make a bad problem even worse because a lot of people will try to grab like water 
and get that on top of the grease fire, obviously that's not going to make anything better. So number one, try to prevent grease from being there in the first place. Number two, smother it if you have the things that can smother it. Also check the wiring on your appliances. If it's exposed or fraying, then just stop fucking using it and get a new one because it's not worth catching stuff on fire. Also, unplug stuff when you're not using them. Finn thinks I'm crazy, but I unplug the toaster every single time I'm done with it and just replug it back in when I'm ready for it. It's just an easy thing to do and it's one less fire risk to worry about. And the last one here is be super, super careful with space heaters. Make sure you're following all the guidelines on them and keep flammable materials away. And I I didn't know this was a thing, but don't use one unless it specifically says that it'll switch off automatically if it's tipped over. Because that's a big way that fire starts sometimes is a space heater falls over and ignites some like papers or like a blanket or something. And that's where the fire starts. So if it, it does not turn itself off when it flips over, you should not use that one. For the folks out there who are outdoorsy or even more niche, people who create instruments and finish them by hand, I know that there's a big popular product called True Oil among other uh, drying finishing oils. If you apply that with a rag or something uh, on your gun stock or on your guitar or something like that, make sure that you lay out those little rags to dry flat and in an open space because if you throw a clumped up piece of uh, oil-soaked rag, it might actually spontaneously combust, especially if you have like mounds or layers of them built up somewhere. So make sure you dry them out. Do not keep them in a place that it can light something else on fire. So whenever I've done this with my own guitars, I make sure that when I'm done, just lay them out flat. They dry completely, toss them when they're done, and nothing's ever happened. So the next section we're going to talk about is getting out of a fire effectively. You know almost all of this stuff. We're just going to go over it real quick. Obviously, if you're on fire yourself, stop, drop, and roll. If you're with someone who's on fire and they're not capable of stop, dropping, and rolling, or they're just panicking and they're not doing it, Try to put the flames out with a blanket. Next, try to stay on the ground as much as possible. Teach your kids to do this as well. There's a huge temperature differential between like when you're standing up at eye level versus when you're crouching down below like knee level. It could be like 600 degrees up at eye level and only 100 degrees when you're down on the ground. So it's not just getting below the smoke, but also getting below the heat. If you're going to be leaving a room to take your exit, make sure you're checking the temperature of both the door and the doorknobs with the back of your hand. And if it's too hot to touch, then that means it's probably not safe to go out that way and try to find another exit. Now, unless you are actually trapped, as in like you're in a burning building and you can't get out, wait to call the fire department until you're actually safely out of the house. It's not worth standing there trying to kick to 911, giving them their address, all that stuff, because the seconds count when you're trying to get out of a building. You can always call from a neighbor's house if you've had to flee your house and you don't have your phone with you. And again, remember, connecting your smoke detectors to your security system can help with this. If you don't have your phone and you're trying to get out and you're not answering that security system calling you, they're going to call the fire department before you can even get to your neighbor's house. So if that's available to you, definitely do it. This sounds both obvious and also not obvious to me at the same time. But if you can, try to practice. Make sure that you and your family or your kids practice getting out of the house in multiple different ways and most importantly, having a meeting spot where y'all can gather together outside of the burning structure away from danger. If you can, also try to train your dogs to go to the front door when they hear the fire alarm. So like I said earlier, our dogs are like totally terrified of smoke alarms and they actually try to climb onto me sometimes. And if I'm like trying to like help our daughter with something or I'm trying to like actually like fix whatever's causing the fire, like the burning pizza, I'm trying to like fan the fucking smoke alarm then they actually do run to the front door just by instinct because they were used to us in the apartment every time that alarm went off. They would go to the front door, we'd leash them, and we'd leave the building. So I think that they kind of train themselves that if they hear that alarm going off, that they actually do run to an exit, which I think is pretty cool. This is new to me because I didn't grow up with this, and I'm not sure if this is done everywhere in America or even other places like Asia, Africa, or Europe, but nowadays they're having kids of all ages get greeted by firefighters near their schools so the kids have an opportunity to become familiar with people who could potentially be saving them in a life-threatening emergency because if you think about it it is very possible for somebody who's already in a panic situation to see like fucking darth vader come at them and be even more panicked so 
getting that sense of familiarity with people behind the mask and knowing who's going to save you in that kind of a crisis is really good for solidifying that kind of muscle memory or mental muscle memory about where to go if you're trying to get saved. Yeah, that's really important, especially for kids, because seeing somebody in a mask like that in a non-panic situation could make all the difference where they don't try and run and hide from the firefighters. Our daughter already knows that when she hears a siren, that means a first responder is going to help somebody. She always asks if they like if they have a boo-boo and they're going to get help. So I know our community and a lot of other communities do like a check out the fire truck in person event. So we're going to go ahead and take her to that when it gets warmer. Another seemingly obvious point of advice, but once you've made it out of a burning structure, don't go back in because there's literally nothing worth going back in for unless it's your child. But again, that's another judgment call you can make. You're not supposed to go back inside for anything like pets either, but depending on who you are, you might lose your mind. So just make sure that you're doing something that's sane and rational and that even if you decide to go back in, try to make it an option for you to leave again if you can. Yeah, you're not supposed to save your pets, but I would absolutely lose my mind and 100% probably burn to death myself too, but I'm not going to let my dogs die that way alone. But if you've gotten out and you have not been able to save your pets and you've can't physically get to them, make sure, and we're not telling you to go inside and save your pets because you're not supposed to do that. I'm just saying that I would. You're supposed to tell the firefighters because even if it's not safe for you, it might be safe for them. And the sooner you tell them, then the better it's going to be. So again, they may not go inside if it's not safe for them. But the best thing you can do is to tell them and give your pets a chance. One really good piece of prep that you can do if you're not around as well is to put some kind of note or sticker saying how many animals you have inside your house. So let's say that you're at work or you're at school and there's somehow a fire that happens inside of your building or your apartment complex, then the firefighters know to look for X amount of things inside your house instead of just assuming that everything's going to die in there or there's nothing in there to save. Yeah, I so we do have this on like all of our doors and stuff. Now, I've read conflicting things about this that firefighters will sometimes disregard those stickers because people don't update them. And so there, what I've read is that they will do the same sweeps regardless of whether they see that sticker or not. And so I, I've i also read some places that you might be able to like put the current year on it so they know it's current and that might get their attention more. But I think it really depends whether or not it's going to actually be helpful or not, but it can't hurt to put it on the door. And we do have them on all of ours. After you have been evacuated from this burning house or building, you're going to have to expect that emergency medical services or firefighters will check you out and see if you have to go to the hospital. But also of your own accord, you need to make sure that if you have pets, to take them to the emergency vet to be checked out as well, especially in the chance that they've inhaled some kind of smoke. Because remember, like in our spider episode where the same amount of venom might mean nothing to us, but could be life-threatening to a cat or a dog. The same amount of inhaled smoke could be literally fatal for those animals, but be survivable for us. So uh, it's better to be safe than sorry and just take them to the animal hospital if you need to. I have one other side note, and that's about crazy people. And this is super far-fetched, but I found this really weird case from April 2017 in which a 42-year-old guy in Jinju, South Korea, set his fourth-story apartment on fire. So he set his own apartment on fire, and that caused the building smoke alarms to go off. So, of course, because the smoke alarms were going off, everybody else in the building started evacuating. And this creep went down from the fourth floor down to the second floor and started stabbing people as they were trying to evacuate their apartment buildings. He actually killed five people, including a 12-year-old girl, and he injured 13 other people. He, he just went on like a stab frenzy after this. So, chances are this is not going to happen, but you never know. There could be a fucking psycho out there. So, just be aware of your surroundings. And I didn't find any other cases like this. I just thought it was so weird I had to share. I just want to say, if this guy is anything like the first guy that you talked about, he's probably going to get out of jail in like seven years and probably do something again. Because you can be an arsonist and kill multiple people, but if you're a drug dealer, you're going to go away to jail for 20 to 30 years. It's something is just fundamentally not right about these justice systems. So I'm not at all going to be surprised since this happened back in 2017 if he's out within 10 years or now. Yeah, I actually just looked into it and I don't know what sentence this guy got because I actually can't and maybe it's just the way South Korean rules work. I can't find anything beyond this guy's last name. So it's just like a thing happened. 
He has a last name. I did find, though, that some people, to avoid the stabbings and the fire, instead of leaving the building like to the ground floor, they actually had to go up onto the roof because they couldn't get past this guy stabbing people on the second floor. After hearing about these crazy fucking weirdos that are involved in arson and public stabbings, I almost feel like I want to be the person in a burning situation to have that knife because what are the chances of there being more than one person in a burning building running around with a knife? If I'm that person, then there's virtually zero chance that anyone else is going to get stabbed. And for the record, when you say anyone else is going to get stabbed, you're not, you would not stab people. You just mean that you would have a knife to reduce the statistical chance of there being a second person with a knife out there. That is not entirely true. For example, if I've got the knife in this hypothetical scenario and I run into the motherfucker who set the shit on fire, I would stab him. So there is a realm of possibility in which, yes, I am the sole knife wielder, or maybe there's two knife wielders and we're not going after each other. And I see the arsonist, I'm going for him. So law enforcement, if you're hearing this, I am not admitting or planning a violent crime. I'm just saying, hypothetically, this is what would happen. So there you have it. Getting back to the serious topic, what happens if you can't get out of a fire? There's a few things you can do. So imagine like you're trapped in your apartment on like the seventh story, you can't get out, or you're just trapped in your house. You want to keep as much of the smoke out of the room that you're in as possible. So block up the cracks under the door, any vents, we have like floor vents, so block those up too. At that point, if you're trapped, obviously call for help if you've got your phone and try to signal through the window with like a bright cloth or a light or a mirror to let somebody know that you're inside of that room. What a great segue into film depictions of fires because Michael Myers, who is also a stabbing maniac, walks out of a burning house in Halloween Kills, which is one of the more recent ones. And then in an ironic twist, he kills the fire department. So you're fucked no matter what. In this story, he had a mask on, but not a gas mask. If Michael Myers is actually still a mortal human being, then there's no way he could walk outside of that building and then kill people. Yeah, at that point, he would need, like, oxygen. He'd be staggering. There's no way he's going to get out there and then, like, proceed to murder an entire fire department. So they'd definitely be safe. And that's one of those things where it's, like, not an accurate portrayal of what it's like to actually be in a house fire. Because it's that was super bright. He could actually walk out of the house instead of, like, crawling out he could see in the smoke so basically every depiction that you see in a horror movie which is where you see a lot of these like house fire kind of situations it's just not accurate at all to what situation you're going to be put in like in real life i feel like a lot of the media depictions whether it's in film or tv shows about house or structural fires that is really misleading is that number one you can see so clearly through all of these house fires. There's no like debilitating smoke. There's no blackout conditions. And number two, the fires spread way slower than they should. Sometimes they spread quickly, but on the whole, it's like it takes half an hour for something to completely burn down, which is patently false. An entire house can burn down in the span of like six minutes, given the right conditions. So um, I think when you're basing reality on what you see in TV shows and, and films, make sure that you understand just how drastically a dangerous house fire can develop and don't think that you have a lot of time to respond to it because a lot of times you don't. I want to bring up one last movie that I just thought of when you're talking about really, really bad depictions and that is Super Buddies. So again, we have like a three-year-old daughter. She loves the Super Buddies movie. It's like if if you guys know Airbud, basically the Buddies movies are like a spinoff series about Airbud's puppies and they go on like different genre kind of adventures and super buddies they're superheroes and they have like special dog powers and it's it's really actually great if you're stuck watching it because all of these buddies movies have like the same cop at the center of them and the kids all change and the dogs all change in every movie but like the cop is always the same person and it's like he has this whole alternate reality built around himself that that's at least that's how I'm coping with watching these movies but Basically, in in Super Buddies, this house is on fire and the dogs have to go save this little girl. And it's like someone left a humidifier on. Like, it's like vague water vapor. And then, like, one, like, joist falls down and that's it. So, I think as a kid, that's the kind of thing that you grow up seeing and expecting that's what a fire is going to be like. And then when you are a child and you encounter a real fire, then that's, it's like, it's a whole different fucking thing. 
Actually, there's one more movie I want to mention, and I have not seen this, but it gets a 68% on Rotten Tomatoes. It's from 1974. It's called The Towering Inferno. I was just Googling it over here, and it has an insane all-star cast, and it was nominated for Best Picture, actually, and it was the highest grossing film of 1974. It has, among others, O.J. Simpson, uh, Paul Newman, and also Fred Astaire, which I can't make make sense in my head as a movie, but it's basically about like this really, really tall building that catches on fire, and it somehow has Fred Astaire. And I don't know if he dances, but I really hope he does. But anyway, that is going to be maybe on our list for this weekend, because I'm very excited. It also has music by John Williams, so you really just can't fucking lose. This looks awesome. One depiction that I think a lot of people who are listening will be familiar with is in one of the earlier episodes of the hit American TV show, The Office, of which the UK version is better in my opinion, but that's neither here nor there. In one of the early episodes, there's a smoke alarm that goes off. I'm not sure if it it becomes a full-blown fire, but the whole gist of it is that the entire office evacuates out into the parking lot relatively quickly and... For people who have never been through a fire like that, it might seem frivolous to just evacuate at the slightest like alarm or something like that, but it really is the right call to make because you never know when something could become serious. So it's almost like when you somebody pulls the fire alarm in a school or some kind of public setting and you have to take it seriously anyways, you should always do that in any other workplace or, or public gathering place because... Like we said earlier, it takes less than a minute for something to spread really quickly. So that reaction in the office was actually the right call to take. So do take that as something that you should do in the real world. That's all we've got for Structure Fires this week. Don't forget that we have a website, inthelabyrinthofdeath.com, and there are free stickers there too. You can also reach us at In the Labyrinth of Death on Instagram. If you like In the Labyrinth of Death, leave us a review and tell your friends. Make sure you tune in next week for a new episode of In the Labyrinth of Death. In the meantime, send us your near misses with house fires to inthelabyrinthofdeath at gmail.com. We'll see you all next week. This podcast is researched and presented by enthusiasts, not experts, and is for entertainment purposes only. None of the content you have heard is meant to be taken as legal, medical, financial, survival, or any other kind of advice. Please consult with actual professionals.